we cannot have weekend at Bernie's here, people. <laughs> it's pretty bad. <laughs> hey, I'm glad you said that instead of me. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 I, I'm sure that would be uh, that would be a headline somewhere if I said it. But yeah, look, it, it, we have two the two likely nominees. I mean, Trump is not that much younger. He's 76. He you know, really Biden's isn't. 80. He would have been in the same high school with Biden, right? If they were, yeah, if yeah, they, that's they true. Would have been colleagues. Hey, it's Johanna Masca, and I am really grateful you're joining me for this podcast, Press Advance. Before we get into the main discussion today, I need to tell you a little bit about my journey in politics. Back in 2004, a little-known candidate for Senate from my home state of Illinois got on stage at the Democratic National Convention and presented his case. The pundits... The pundits like to slice and dice our country into red states and blue states, red states for Republicans, blue states for Democrats. But I've got news for them, too. We worship an awesome God in the blue states, and we don't like federal agents poking around in our libraries in the red states. We coach Little League in the blue states, and yes, we've got some gay friends in the red states. There are patriots who oppose the war in Iraq, and their patriots who supported the war in Iraq. We are one people, all of us pledging allegiance to the Stars and Stripes, all of us defending the United States of America. In the end, in the end, in the end, that's what this election is about. Do we participate in a politics of cynicism or do we participate in a politics of hope? He talked about my hometown of Galesburg, Illinois. He had met workers there who had lost their jobs at Maytag when they moved to Mexico, and their hope was gone. So when President Obama was even thinking about running for president, I knew I wanted to work for him. I worked for President Obama's campaign bid from the early days in Iowa onward to the White House, eight years in total, two in the campaign, six years of the White House, and it taught me a lot about politics. There is no one person who always gets everything right. And often there are egos that get in the way of ethics and progress. Now, I'm still proud that I worked with President Obama and with a lot of incredible people, but there are still people in my hometown of Galesburg, Illinois, who have still lost those jobs and really hope in politics. We have to hold our own accountable if we're going to move the needle because there are people looking to do the right thing on every side of the aisle. We might have different ways to get there, but we still need progress for people in places like Galesburg, Illinois. And while I recognize more change is needed, I also realize that sometimes we forget what we have. So many around the world crave what we have in America, the freedoms we often take for granted, the roads, the bridges, the water, the power. We are imperfect. We have to make progress, but we can only do it together. And that's exactly what I wanna do with Press Advance. For today's episode, when the pundits slice and dice America, they call Maryland a blue state. As of March of this year, more than half of the state is registered as Democrats, only a little less than a quarter of the state identified as Republicans. And that's why I wanted to talk with Maryland's former Republican governor, Larry Hogan. He's the first two-term Republican governor in 64 years in the state of Maryland. He left the state after his two terms with a 77% approval rating. This year, 
And that was after serving eight years under many different presidents. He often focused on economic issues, leaving the social issues off the table. And because of his ability to draw independents and Democrats to his side, he was someone who a lot of people thought should run for president in 2024. He has declined, but he plans to use his voice in this election. Governor Larry Hogan joins me today to break down the Republican primary, the path to victory for a Republican candidate, and what he wants to see today, talking about the politics of hope. You know, uh, uh, we've got this angry, toxic politics, uh, and nothing's getting done, divisiveness and dysfunction. And I think the country wants to be brought together. Stick around after Governor Hogan, because I dive deeper into the electoral math and how a Republican could win this election with another friend on the Republican side, Samantha Dravis. Samantha and I went to the University of Kansas together more years ago than we probably care to admit. <laughs> but we've kept in touch since, both always working on opposite sides of the aisle. Samantha is a Republican lawyer who has worked on multiple presidential campaigns and in the White House and administrations of President George W. Bush and President Donald Trump, and joins me today. They say politics ain't beanbag, but you see that, I think, most in these intra-party fights where they tend to be really personal and really... Um, you know, tough. <laughs> I am really hoping that with press advance, we can get back to the politics of hope and find the doers on both sides of the aisle, those who hold themselves and our country to a high standard. With Governor Larry Hogan, here's some things you should know. His victory totally surprised pundits. He ran an unlikely campaign on public financing. He attacked Democrats for increasing fees and taxes in the state without conserving funds. He beat the Democratic candidate that his predecessor and my former boss endorsed. But when he walked into the governor's office, <laughs> he actually went to the governor's mansion and found that the furniture had all been removed. He recently turned the governor's mansion over to a rising star in the Democratic Party, Wes Moore. So my first question I had to ask him was, did he leave his successor any furniture? Oh, yeah, we left all the furniture. Not, not, not only did we leave all the, all the, all the government house furniture, um, I even left half of my own personal furniture you know, to see if he needed it. I have to tell our listeners that when you took over the governor's mansion from Democrat Martin O'Malley, evidently he had spent more than $60,000 in state dollars for furniture, but then took it with him for like $9,000, which is a heck of a deal. And then I saw that Republican Governor Ehrlich spent $9,000, but it was like on linens and stuff. And he took it with him for about $900. And I don't understand how this keeps happening, but I appreciate that you brought some fiscal sense to that state. Yeah, well, thank you. And uh, yeah, we didn't take anything but our suitcases and the clothes in the closet and uh, left everything else there for the new guy. The thing I've seen, you know, we're on different sides of the aisle, but there are good people on both sides of the aisle. There are also people who take advantage of their positions on both sides of the aisle. And I think for any of us who have been really up close and personal in this situation, you want the good people of your party to stay in and have a seat at the table because you trust them. You are a fiscal conservative. You really, uh, when asked about some of the controversial issues, 
including the former president, you were saying, you know, that's not my issue. I'm really focused on this. For many reasons, there were a lot of people asking you to jump into this presidential race, having won Democrats and independents, having brought a message of inclusion to the state, and you decided not to. Why did you decide not to? Well, sure. I was really flattered that so many people were trying to encourage me uh, to consider running. And I certainly was concerned about the direction of my party and concerned about the country. And I thought I have and still have a voice that I think can make a difference. Um, I thought I would be a pretty good general election candidate, actually, because I left office in the bluest state in America. I was only the second Republican to be reelected in the entire 246 year history of the state. And I did it by winning over the support of not just Republicans, but independents and Democrats. And I left office after eight challenging years with a 77% job approval. And it was by bringing people together, by seeking out bipartisan common sense solutions, by reaching across the aisle and uh, you know taking the best ideas, regardless of which side of the aisle they came from and really working with a a 70% majority Democratic legislature in both houses. Uh, and we got a lot of things done. And so we had a track record. However, uh, you know, in this particular environment, it's very difficult to make it through a Republican primary process that is being dominated by Donald Trump. Um, I thought I had an important voice and I'm going to keep talking as much as I can. Uh, but as, as a candidate, I didn't see the ability to get traction. There were, you know, potentially four or five people that were sounding similar to me and that were uh, kind of fighting for the scraps, I would say, because Trump is over 50 percent. Uh, you know, Ron DeSantis is at 20 percent. Trump's going up. DeSantis is going down. But everyone else, the other six or eight people were all tied with me at, you know, two, three, four percent, you know, wherever you're looking. Yeah, you know, say sometimes one percent. And uh, if, if everybody would I didn't want to see the same result of 2016 where you had too many people running, they wouldn't get out and coalesce behind one candidate. And uh, we ended up, you know, nominating a, a guy that I don't think, you know, should win the nomination and shouldn't be president again. Yeah, well, and um, you've learned really your moral and ethical guidelines. Your dad was a Republican who actually stood up uh, to corruption and was an early influence in that way. Well, I learned an awful lot about uh, public service and about integrity from my dad. He was on the House Judiciary Committee during the impeachment of uh, Richard Nixon during Watergate. And uh, I was a high school kid at the time, just to tell you how old I am. Uh, but my uh, my dad was the first Republican to come out for the impeachment of Richard Nixon. And, uh, you know, it was uh, it was a you know, Nixon actually says in his memoirs when he you know, when he, his vote is what made him decide he had to resign the presidency. So it's it was pretty impactful. Uh, he was the first one to come out and the only Republican to vote for all three articles of impeachment. And, uh, you know, it hurt him politically, but in the long run, it's what he's most remembered for and the thing I'm most proud of him for. And he put uh, doing the right thing for the country ahead of, you know, party loyalty or personal, uh, personal political gain. History is kind to those who do the right thing. But I think for the lay person who doesn't understand the ins and outs of a Republican or a Democratic primary process, they think, okay, you're a moral character. You could run for office. 
but we know it's actually a math game that you actually have to get the right number of delegates. And especially for something like a presidential bid, it's not a question of whether you could do the job. You could do the job. (laughs) It's a question of whether you could get there. So the Republican Party sets the process and then actually individual states have uh, some control over the delegate calculation of what ends up happening for that bid. Going through this process, the early states, we know I will will go first, New Hampshire, we've got Nevada, South Carolina. Those things matter a lot for perception because if you win and surprise people in an early state, that'll matter. But then the delegate math is really where it comes into account. States that are not early, all of those votes can make a difference, especially when it's a highly contentious race. What is the delegate math? And I know some of it's still being shuffled out until about October, but what does that actually look like? What do people have to get? Because there's some states where if you don't get 20%, you literally leave with no delegates. So you're absolutely right. When you're a good candidate, but you get 5%, it's not going to matter. Well, yeah, it's a very convoluted and uh, complicated process. And you're right. It's all decided by uh, either the Republican National Committee or the Democratic National Committee and the state parties. It's not really set by law. It's uh, They make the decisions about how they're going to nominate candidates. And the states are all different. And so, you know, you do the caucus in Iowa, which is kind of a interesting but strange concoction that we only do in Iowa. And then you go to New Hampshire, which is an open primary uh, where, where Democrats and independents could vote in the, you know, out of the, I think, uh, 12 of the first 18 primaries going all the way up to Super Tuesday are open primary states where you could, if you properly motivated folks, get independents could say, I'm going to go vote in the Republican primary and pick, you know, this person or Democrats who are disaffected who said, and maybe they were discerning Democrats or, you know, left of center Democrats, centrist Democrats who said, I, I like this one person in the Republican Party. They could go vote. But that would be, I think, the more people making the decision on nominating our nominees, the better. You know, but unfortunately, we have very small turnouts, 20 some percent sometimes turn out. And they're usually the most passionate and the kind of, uh, you know, the people that are either furthest to the right in the Republican Party or furthest to the left in the Democratic Party. And we nominate folks that when we get to the general election, uh, you know, sometimes they say, you know, we're, we're not happy with these choices. And that's what we're seeing right now. When about 65% of the people in America do not want to rematch and they do not want to have uh, Joe Biden or Donald Trump as the nominees, but it, it's, it looks at this point in time that they have a very good chance of being the nominees. I keep hoping because I was there in Iowa doing the hard work when everyone was telling me that Hillary Clinton was going to win for President right. Obama. And, you know, we... That was a huge, huge thing for President Obama. I know you were a big part of that. Yeah, I started in Iowa. So that caucus, that was bizarre to me because caucus math is also a thing where if you show up and you've got double the amount of people, but the delegate count is such that if you only get 35 or 34, you get a delegate. We ended up having, you know, so many more people in one caucus site. And yet we all ended up walking away. It was at the time, it was uh, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and John Edwards, (laughs) who 
of yeah. course, has been uh, history has not looked favorably <laughs> to him. Yeah, but at the time at he all. was really, uh, you know, he was a attractive candidate that was getting a lot of attention, and you know had his stumbles. But yeah, you're you're right about there are many states that are winner take all where it doesn't matter. You could you could win. Trump was winning some of the early states in 2016 with 20 some percent of the vote, but he got 100 percent of the delegates. Um, other states. You can win. You can pick up votes, and are they're allocated on a proportional basis or by congressional districts? Like you could win this part of the state and these couple of districts, you would get a certain number of delegates. But many of them, it you know, it doesn't matter if you get over fifty percent. It doesn't matter if uh, there are people really close. It's winner take all. You win by one vote, you get all the delegates. Which comes down to how someone with twenty percent, if they've divided the field so much they may get 25% and they're still the nominee. 25% of the 20% of people who showed up. Exactly. Which is so That's troubling. Exactly, yeah, right. Yeah, 25% of the 25% is not a whole lot of folks. <laughs> no, it's not. So when, when it gets to that calculation, it really is like you have to figure out how you're going to get enough percentage people. We increased the number of people who came to the caucus or joined yeah. us in the primary process, tried to get young people who had never been out. Now, I don't see that happening on the Democratic side. We're going to run uh, Joe Biden and I teased Ben LeBolt, who's, you know, communications director, who I'm a big fan of. But I said, like, I'm going to have to say he's the queen of England, like he's getting up there in age and we're just <laughs> yeah. going to keep running him. I mean, that's just the <laughs> it is. It's like, you know, we cannot have weekend at Bernie's here, people. <laughs> it's pretty bad. <laughs> hey, I'm glad you said that instead of me. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, <laughs> It, I, I'm sure that would be uh, that would be a headline somewhere if I said it. But yeah, look, it, it, we have two the two likely nominees. I mean, Trump is not that much younger. He's 76. You know, he Biden really is 80. By the time we get in, you know, he would have been in the same high school with Biden, right? If they yeah. were, if they that's true. They would, would have been colleagues. Yeah, no, that's true. And I think Joe Biden's going to have a hard time motivating young voters and really there's not a lot of enthusiasm if you look at the most recent polls more than 50 percent i think 55 percent of the likely democratic primary voters do not want joe biden but no one <clears throat> no one serious is stepping up that he's going to be the nominee uh, you know unless there's you know something unforeseen that happens between now and the election and when you are the incumbent, you can change the rules such that they favor you. So we've already seen Biden move South Carolina, which, of course, was the state that he won and then went on with up in the primary process. So actually, in New Hampshire, if you are a Democrat or if you are moderate, you're disaffected and you want someone else, you're far more powerful if you go vote in the Republican election because you actually have a say there, whereas the Democrats have already broadcast that they intend to throw those votes out, which I'm against, but they plan on doing that. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And it's one of the things that we were considering. I mean, our strategy as I was contemplating running was we had to win New Hampshire. And the fact that I was tied in the polls with the governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, which was, you know, uh, it, it was telling. I mean, he wasn't, it wasn't that I was that high. It was like we were both down there pretty low and Trump was by far, you know, leading the pack. But I was counting on running a campaign, uh, not only to energize the Republicans who, who didn't want to see Trump and bring some independence over. But I agree with you. I thought since they've just insulted the entire state and since they have no choice 
in the process, they've been kind of kept kicked out of the Democratic primary and not they're not no longer have an important role for the Democrats that many Democrats might cross over and say, I'm going to vote for who I think is the mo- the, the, the best Republican or the, you know, the most centrist or the one that isn't quite as crazy as the ones, the other ones. <laughs> you know? Yeah. People who are common sense independents and just want government to work should show up this time. Well, most people, about 70% of the people in America are really frustrated with the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and the fastest growing segment in America in every single state are independents. They're, they're leaving both parties uh, out of frustration. And uh, the, the problem is they don't t- tend to vote as often. They're not, you know, they're not the passionate center that lines up at the polls. Getting back to how do those people who are actually appealing, like yourself, to independents and Democrats having a chance, part of that is organizing, getting in early enough so that you can actually organize, get those Democrats, find them, do the modeling, get them. And what we did was actually appeal to the children. We had Barack stars who were 17, 16 years old, they couldn't vote, but they were encouraging their parents to go vote for a different generation of leadership. Well, that strategy worked. I mean, that was uh, you know, him, him winning Iowa was, you know, obviously, you know, lit the fuse that started the whole, the whole tremendous campaign that he was able to do. I jumped to South Carolina directly, and I'm proud of that because then we went on to lose New Hampshire, and we we, uh, didn't do as well in Nevada, but we won South Carolina, and I was like, yes. (laughs) Um, But I always say we never would have won South Carolina had we not won in Iowa. So I'm trying to watch this field shake out and try to figure out, is there anybody who has this open lane? And you talked about Sununu. I'm watching Sununu. Brian Kemp, I think, is still considering. Do you know? Have you talked to him? You know, Brian Kemp's a friend, but I haven't. He hasn't really, uh, you know, told me what he's going to do. I'm not sure. I would say it's uh, yes. There's certainly a possibility, but I, you know, I haven't seen uh, real evidence of it yet. But there are a number of people actively considering that I think are soon to potentially get in the race, and they probably have to get in by you know, in the next month, or they really don't have the ability to uh, raise the hard dollars, the small dollar donations to get on that debate stage in August to build the kind of network. And so, you know, some people are like, oh, we'll we'll wait until the fall. That's just not practical. I mean, I think if they don't, if they're not in by June, um, they're not going to be the nominee. And so I I think we're looking at the potential of, as you mentioned, Brian Kemp, potentially Sununu, we're, you know, um, we're assuming that Mike Pence is going to announce, but still hasn't. We're waiting for Chris Christie as a potential candidate. All, there are a lot of great folks out there that are thinking about it that all have different strengths. And I know on all of them, and almost all of them are former governors who I've worked with, uh, with the exception of Tim Scott, who's the only senator considering it. But I don't, I can't tell you today, I, you know, I, and, and just being honest, everybody asked me this question. I don't see like who might rise up, you know, out of that pack. Somebody has to. And then we all all try to coalesce around that person because I think it's very important for the party to move on from uh, Trump and Trumpism and the MAGA base. So we've got to pick up somebody. You can't beat somebody with nobody. And you can't do it by having the vote split up between a bunch of people. And uh, so it's going to be interesting to see. But, the you know, the, the, the first primaries are almost a year away. And 
you know, I would just caution that everything we talk about a year earlier from the election doesn't usually turn out. I mean, a year before 2016, everybody was guaranteed that Jeb Bush was going to be the nominee and Donald Trump was below one and he won. You know, so we just have to t wait and see how it all plays out and how they perform on the field. And we're still waiting to see what DeSantis does. You know, he's he's heading in the wrong uh, direction, you know, dropping pretty consistently, but he hasn't really gotten in the race. Which we did before we came back up. You know, you know, Governor DeSantis, I see in some ways, you know, he's kind of like Barack Obama to me because he's very he decides on things not by polls, but by conviction. Um, I, of course, uh, resent uh, the original book that he wrote, in large part, very critical of my boss, believing that he didn't know the Constitution when my boss was a constitutional law professor. <laughs> but he I didn't, he actually, I didn't read that book, but I'm anxious to hear your take on it. <laughs> uh, it's, um, you know, he, he really believes he knew the founders. It feels like to me that DeSantis is like in the founders minds, like in some ways he's got that arrogance that actually a lot of people criticize president Obama for, but he's selling out rooms. The, the problem is he just doesn't seem to be finding that voice yet against, uh, Donald Trump. What do you think about DeSantis? And for me, I want someone who's going to bring us together and try to find common ground. And I don't see DeSantis doing that. Am I wrong? No, I don't. I don't know that you're wrong. Look, I also believe that it's really important that we find someone that can bring us together. I, I think the country is terribly divided. You know, uh, uh, we've got this angry, toxic politics. Uh, and nothing's getting done, divisiveness and dysfunction. And I think the country wants to be brought together. I think DeSantis, he's obviously got some political skills and, you know, he's been a, 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 a successful governor in Florida who was, uh, you know, just reelected. Uh, his strategy appears to be to uh, really go after the Trump base, uh, the MAGA base, and to try to out-Trump Trump or to be a younger, smarter version of Trump. And that strategy did get him some attention, but it seems like they took a look at him and then went back to Trump. And I think somebody's got to figure out a way to reach, you know, you're not going to run to the, to, you're not going to out Trump Donald Trump. Right. And I think that's a, that's a bad calculation. And it may be smart for that 20 some percent that vote in the primary that we were talking about. It could get him a nomination, but it certainly doesn't help you get elected president. It doesn't win over swing voters and suburban women and minorities and discerning independents, you know, that, that he's, he's, he's picking up the, some hardcore base, you know, interest, but he's also turning off wide swaths of, of swing voters who are going to make up the decision in November of next year. Do you like DeSantis? Do you think he's a good governor? I mean, I think he's been a pretty good governor and the people of Florida thought so because they reelected him. Uh, <clears throat> I don't really know him well, even though I chaired the governor's association, um, which he didn't belong to. Um, I was on the executive committee of the RGA uh, where he didn't really get too involved. And he's not, you know, he, none of the governors really are that close to him. He's, he's a kind of a hard guy to get to know, but um, I've certainly been following his progress. I think he's got some strengths and I think he, you know, I don't agree with kind of the uh, big government authoritarian, um, you know, the Disney's the largest employer in the state. Forgetting about the issue they were arguing about just to, to try to punish 
your largest business and your biggest employer because they happen to disagree with you. I mean, it's, it's, he, you said he knows the founders and, uh, you know, it, it, it seems as if, uh, you know, we have a thing called free speech and, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a traditional, I would say I'm from the Republican wing of the Republican party and we believe in smaller government and supporting businesses and not overreaching, uh, you know, authority. And that's, it doesn't seem like a very Republican thing to do. Yeah, no. One of the things I'm trying to do in this podcast is get to know the candidates and who they are, because I think too often we we feed into that Trump v. Biden, they get all the oxygen and we didn't don't get to know of the contenders who would be a good president, in your opinion. Well, I think um, I think the best training ground uh, to be president are the governors and on the Republican side, at least. With the exception of uh, Tim Scott, every single one of them uh, is a former governor. You know, so Pompeo dropped out, but we have Mike Pence, who I served with as a governor. Uh, you got Chris Christie was a governor, Sununu, DeSantis, Haley, uh, all of them. And so I think they have. You started the the podcast by saying, you know, I had the skills to be governor. I think they have. They've governed. They've run a state. It is different than being a legislator where you might be a very effective uh, speaker, you might be advocating and, and, and pushing to get things done, but you're not really running an entire government like you do as, as governor. So any one of them probably has the skill set. Um, and it's just going to be, uh, that's why we have this whole process to see how they perform on the field in the campaign. And so being a good governor doesn't necessarily mean you're a good candidate for president, but it does say you've got some, some ability to put together a government. Some governors do better than others, right? Um, there have been people who have been critical of Nikki Haley, including actually you talked about Pompeo. And I was disappointed that he didn't throw his hat in the ring because he's very smart, especially on international affairs, foreign affairs and the U.S. positioning. I just think he's got such an incredible voice. I think Pompeo made a similar decision to what I did. And we were we were kind of in the same similar spot where we were in single digits and some people really thought we'd be great, but we weren't getting the traction. And and Trump was uh, and DeSantis were both continuing to suck all the oxygen out of the room. So, you know, I, I respect his you know, him making the decision he made, but I agree. He, he certainly had a lot of skills and ability. You mentioned Chris Christie. He did say to ABC, I think he likes his job where he's a contributor, but is he going to get in? You know, it's looking more and more like that. Um, Christie is a very good friend of mine. And I say he's holding his cards pretty close to the vest because he hasn't told me uh, a final decision, but I know he's given it, he's giving it serious consideration. And, uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if he got in the race, but, uh, you know, I can't I can't guarantee, uh, you know, I can't I can't tell you what the decision is going to be, but I think it's going to be pretty soon. We'll have to do a follow up episode on that one, because I have so many questions about Chris Christie. I, I got to say, you have no Bridgegate drama, so you may. I don't know. You could have you could have done it. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to talk about that. Look, Chris Christie is a really good friend of mine. And I was when I was running for governor and I was only the second you know, Republican elected in 50 years in our state. Christie was the chair of the Republican Governors Association, and that's where we we first met. And he was, in, you know, very instrumental in helping me win the race. And so we're we're buddies. Uh, but yeah, I, I'll be happy to talk to you about it after we figure out. What <laughs> I he's look doing. forward to. It. <laughs> I look forward to it. I have another question because you've built businesses. In fact, you built a business early on. You tried to. You had a line of credit. Actually, the banks were having a crisis, and your line of credit went away. You ended up 
trying to put everything on the line, including your house. You ended up losing everything because you put all of that on the line. We are now entering a era where we're seeing another banking crisis. This could have serious ramifications for small businesses. What do you think about like the economic arguments and who's going to be best prepared to make that argument? Well, that's a really good question. Look, I think the, the economy is the number one concern of people in America. And I'm frustrated that it doesn't seem as if uh, anyone is focused on talking about uh, the concerns about the economy or what they're going to do to, to fix some of the underlying problems. And I think there, if, if you do see polling, you know, there's a lot of argument on the Republican side about social issues and, you know, they're they're fighting with school boards and you see the stuff with DeSantis and and, uh, you know, it's it's an issue they're they're talking about abortion and guns and transgendered and, you know, all kinds of stuff, which, you know, certainly some some people in the base that really is what they're concerned about. But the average Amer American uh, is is really concerned about the economy, followed by they're keeping their community safe. They're concerned about crime and their kids education. And I don't see any of the candidates. They need to. And I think that's someone that focuses on economic message and solutions about making sure that we turn the economy around. I mean, the Biden administration keeps I mean, their message is kind of the economy's fine. We're doing great. There's job growth. Don't worry. But the average person is going to the grocery store and being impacted by inflation and saying, uh, wow, I, you know, I can't spend a couple hundred dollars to feed my kids and the prices have yeah. doubled, you know, yeah. it's uh, there's a disconnect. We're not tackling the hard issues on either side of the party of what we're going to do about that with you've got nearly half of our retirees, um, soon to be retirees, baby boomers don't have retirement savings, 20 plus percent of, of our budget is Social Security. It's just so frustrating. So one of the of course, people I'm watching in the Democratic Party is Westmore. Westmore, again, you turned the state over to Westmore. He keeps bragging about your budget surplus. Yeah. <laughs> what do you yeah, what do you well, make of that? Well, we left them in pretty good shape. Um, you know, when I took over the state, uh, in, in, I was sworn in in January of 2015. Our state was 49th out of 50 states in overall economic performance. And we had raised taxes 43 times in a row. We were losing businesses, jobs, and taxpayers. And we had the largest deficit in state history, $5 billion. Um, in, in the eight years we were there, we turned the economy around, took it to six, number six best economy, biggest economic turnaround in America. We cut taxes eight years in a row by $4.7 And we left the state in the best shape it's ever been in with the largest surplus in history, $5 billion. So a $10 billion turnaround. So Wes... Moore is starting out in a pretty good shape. He doesn't have to dig out from the hole that we had to do. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm sure he appreciates that. I'm just hoping that, uh, you know, it's all Democrats now. There's no checks and balances in our state. It's, everybody's a Democrat. And I'm just hoping that they don't spend all the money, that they try to preserve some of that hard earned effort of putting the state in better fiscal shape. I know we your time is uh, short and I really appreciate you coming on. But I do have another question because you told News Nation you weren't going to run for the Senate seat. Of course, the Ben Cardin seat and a lot of people are trying to figure out what's going to happen there. Now, everybody came back to you and said, 
you should run for that seat. You need to stay at this. But what is it that you're thinking about these days? And could you come into that Senate seat? Well, you know, I've said over and over again that, uh, number one, I just didn't have a burning desire to be a senator. You know, I loved being governor. Uh, I've been running businesses my whole life. I'm more of an executive. I got to make decisions every day uh, that impacted people's lives. And you have a lot of ability to make a difference. The senators, not to say it's not an important job, but you're one of a hundred and you're, you know, arguing all day and uh, making speeches in committees, but very little ever seems to get done. And so I think just on a personal human level, I think it'd be really frustrating to be sitting in the Senate. I'm not sure it would motivate me. It's not where my skill set lies, I don't think. But I get why they're coming after me. We haven't elected a Republican senator since 1986. And uh, in the last seat that opened up two years ago, Chris Van Hollen, the Washington Post poll said I would beat him by 12 points. And, you know, as I said, I left with the highest approval rating of any politician in state history. And so I probably could win the seat, uh, but uh, it just not, you know, the problem was I would win and then I'd have to go be a senator. So that math equation (laughs) was in your favor, but didn't work out. We're going to watch the math on the Republican side. I do hope that smart people are advising other smart people. So I I am going to take you up on the Christy. And even if Christy doesn't come in, I'm going to be curious. Please let me know who you are advising. And hopefully they make the economic arguments because I agree. Like, well, I'm going to I'm going to talk to all of my friends and I'm going to do my best uh, to help move the dialogue in the direction I think we need to head because it's so important. Uh, This is a critical election. I mean, we always say that, but I really think the country's at a point where uh, a critical turning point, and I'm concerned that we've got to have a healthy and competitive two-party system, and we have to have both both, uh, sides talking about issues that people care about and talking about you know, common sense solutions. It's so ugly. I see it. You know, my son's in public school and you can see the frustrations on our kids' playground. And it's so stupid. We have far more in common with one another. Governor Hogan, I am so grateful for your time today. Um, I'm going to, you know, get you to come on and eventually you will make the comment about uh, whether it's, you know, uh, weekend at Bernie's or something else that's going to make lots of news. But my hope is we can have substantive conversations and move the ball forward with press well, advance. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it and I uh, look forward to talking with you again. My thanks to Governor Larry Hogan. As we are recording this, state parties in some cases are still shuffling out how their delegates are going to be divvied up. And it matters a lot because the path to a nomination depends on a fair shot at delegates. There's a lot that happens behind closed doors, so it's sometimes hard to get the information. For that reason, I turned to a Republican friend who I have trusted for more than 20 years, Samantha Dravis. I've done a number of different campaigns over the last couple of decades. Um, two presidentials, Romney 2012 and John McCain in 2008. Now I'm dating myself. I don't want to <laughs> go back too, too much further than that. Um, and then I've done a number of Senate races, Ted Cruz in 2018 when he ran against Beto O'Rourke, which, is a ver- which was a very close, exciting race. Um, and then most recently, I helped out um, David McCormick, who ran for the Republican primary in Pennsylvania against Dr. Oz, another really important swing state. Um, in this country. So yeah, I've had some great experiences working on top of the ticket all the way down to congressional seats. And, um, you know, campaigning is a whole different thing than governing, as you know. 
It is, and it's being part of a family fight, I think, differentiates us. I mean, I remember jumping in against Hillary, and Hillary was the shoe-in. Everybody believed she would be the nominee. And it takes a certain degree of fortitude and knowing who you are to get in early and stand up against another member of your party because, you know, you're fighting for your candidate and your values in a in a fight where a lot of the various policies they may have some agreement on. And I'd, I'd like to think, you know, in America, we all have certain value structures. So it is, it's always kind of a family fight, but gosh, our family table has gotten really dirty lately. <laughs> um, primaries, in my opinion, tend to be way tougher, way more dirty and, you know, way more of a knife fight, if you will. They say politics ain't beanbag, but you see that, I think, most in these uh, intra-party fights where they tend to be really personal and really, um, you know, tough. <laughs> well, and we did. We you stood up all Hillary's vulnerabilities. It's one of the things that I'm monitoring the Republicans for on who's going to take on the king. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing, and it's always, it's too early to predict who's going to be the nominee on the Republican side. I think we can decisively say that as of now, Joe Biden is not going to face a significant challenge. And he's mapped the road such going through South Carolina to avoid any surprises. That's part of how you have to figure out how you're going to win. So for, you know, listeners who haven't been part of a presidential campaign, you know, they're at the early stage, a candidate decides, okay, somehow I look myself in the mirror and I believe I should be president. I still have no idea how like, that decision is made. Kind of- <laughs> yeah, it is. They make that decision. And then they're like, if they're smart, how am I going to get there? So, you know, the, the roads for these campaigns, traditionally there was, you go to Iowa, you go to New Hampshire, you go to Nevada, you go to South Carolina. We basically mapped out our route to win. And you have to have these big moments, moments where you step on the stage and you get attention so that people can understand who you are. Because we're doing in this podcast, we're kind of diving deep on, I think you have some very interesting candidates, interesting people who are going to shape the future of the Republican Party. But they need a standout moment for anyone to get to know who they are. So then it's about using that standout moment to like actually get the delegates that you need to win. What is that like on the Republican side? Well, let me back up and just say, I think it's pretty clear that right now this is a two-man race between Trump and DeSantis. The status quo clearly favors President Trump because he's sort of running as an incumbent. He had the last four years and then even before that with his White House political operation to work with state parties, get rules changed to favor him and really lay a, a groundwork in 50 states in a way that no other candidate, including DeSantis, was able to do. But DeSantis also has a national profile. He's going to have the money and the staff infrastructure to compete. So, you know, there's, as I said, three or four different buckets that I'm thinking about. One, obviously, is the media who's getting the most airtime and who's making those sort of splashy narratives, as you said, for those soundbite moments that voters in these key primary states are going to catch on to. 
The second one is donors. And I think both Trump and DeSantis have proven formidable in this regard in that, you know, each of them has raised a significant amount of money and has significant backing from some of the country's top billionaires that are investing in politics. You've seen over the past couple of months, donors are saying they're looking for a Trump alternative. Some of them are, you know, totally sold on DeSantis. Some of them want to know more about DeSantis, but that donor aspect is going to be a big part of this too. You also have the polling, which right now reflects that Trump has a really sizable, healthy lead over DeSantis. But what's not sort of mentioned in the headlines on the polling is that only 24% of respondents in these polls are saying that they would only vote for Trump. Mm. Last, I think, is this is this piece that is less known to the public, but that is perhaps the most important piece, and that's the fight for the delegates. So, you know, the RNC has already said they've got their four early primary states, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, and how states are going to award their delegates and whether or not they're going to have a primary, a caucus, or a convention, which are three very different things, is still completely up in the air. And so what's happening behind the scenes right now is the Trump campaign and the DeSantis campaign are are going to try to work with all of these various state parties to get the rules set in a way that they think favors them the most and to get delegates awarded in a way that will favor them the most. So in 2020, President Trump got many of these state parties to change their rules from, um, you know, basically a very low five or six percent threshold to get and awarded any delegates to say you had to receive a 20 percent of the vote or higher to get any delegates at all essentially making it really hard for anyone other than President Trump to get any delegates. So whether that holds going into 2024 is going to be hugely consequential. Um, and it will kind of, I think, determine whether or not there's a he remains the clear front runner or whether there could be a fight on the convention floor, as you saw in 2016, sort of that attempted coup by Senator Cruz against President Trump. So these are the dynamics that are really going to determine the race. And all of this right now is happening behind the scenes. Hmm. You know, I hope that the journalists will laser into some of these fights because a lot of it is done behind closed doors. I think that's what Bernie was, you know, upset about with the Democratic Party. And so he raged against superdelegates, which were people who had been party establishment for some time. We had to compete for those superdelegates. We saw it much as a math equation. You win as the rules are written, not you rewrite the rules. So let's go appeal to superdelegates. There was a whole strategy around that. This one's funky because not all of the rules are written, although there have been winner-take-all states. And those would be states that would be key to actually win. And if you don't win, then you're losing all the delegates. And that's I think people don't always understand, oh my gosh, the caucus, Samantha, when we were back in Iowa for the the caucus for President Obama, caucus math is like the most insane thing ever because what they do is they count like all the people who come to the room. And so for us, it was if somebody gets, you know, X amount of people, then they qualify for a delegate out of that caucus. So for us, my caucus site, we had like 120 people for President Obama. But I think the threshold was like 34. And so there was like 34 for Edwards and 35 for Clinton. And so we all ended up leaving with the same number of delegates, which was 
so frustrating. And I was thinking, oh my God, if this happens everywhere. And of course, thank God it did not. And we ended up winning. But those things are really important to be paying attention to. Well, and and it illustrates just sort of A, the endurance that it takes to kind of, I mean, that's an incredibly grueling process just to get through one state caucus. And then you're on to the next fight. So you really have to have a team and a candidate that has that level of endurance to fight all the way through to Super Tuesday and then maybe beyond. Um, And then also, I think it illustrates the importance of the difference for your listeners between a primary, just a regular state primary, which is run by the state, or a caucus, which is run by the party, and is a completely different process of sort of, as you said, you have groups of people who have to show up and say, hi, I'm here to support Ron DeSantis or... Uh, Donald Trump. And it's a completely different process of, you know, getting the people in in the seats. And it tends to, as they say, favor um, more diehard activists, right? So it's not your everyday person off the street who's just going to their polling location and voting. It requires a more um, a higher level of commitment. And so it tends to favor uh, more far right, I guess you would say, or far left, um, depending on which party. And so, you know, if you're President Trump, the conventional wisdom would be you prefer to have caucuses versus primaries. The other thing I was going to mention is sort of the the winner take all versus that functional winner take all where in order to get any delegates at all, you have to cross, you know, a 20 percent threshold. Well, for someone like Tim Scott or Nikki Haley, that's going to make it very difficult for them to get any delegates at all. And so that that system is functionally winner take all, even though it's not um, explicitly winner take all. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's, it, it, as I understand by about October, they have to decide, right? So, but then the candidates will really only have from October to whenever that state's contest is to figure out their math and whether it's worth investing resources in. It's a fluid situation right now. By October 1st is the deadline by which states have to decide whether what kind of primary they're going to have, whether it be a convention, a caucus, or a, or a primary, how their delegates are awarded and how delegates are seated. And then there's another aspect of this that's important to keep an eye on too, which is the ballot access. So some states like Virginia and Indiana, you actually have to qualify for the ballot by obtaining a high level of a high number of signatures and that requires manpower and effort and you saw back in 2016 that even the Jeb Bush campaign which was really well funded struggled getting ballot access in some of these states and so again you're you're looking to the only two campaigns who have the endurance and the staff to be able to do that is Trump and DeSantis I feel like Tim Scott, with the reserves that he's got, with financial backing he's got, has a shot if he manages it well. Am I wrong? I don't know that you're wrong, but I think that it's really the boots on the ground and also the existing infrastructure. So as I said, one of the things that sort of, I think, benefits Trump is he's sort of spent the last four or more years working all of these state party chairs, in some cases, influencing who becomes the state party chair, who the staff is on the ground, down to the county level. And that's where I think um, a a less organized campaign like a Nikki Haley or Tim Scott is going to struggle to get the number of people that it takes to get the delegates, the signatures, and that process done. 
Yeah. I mean, you have to be really organized. Well, that's it with Samantha Dravis. I really appreciate all of you who stuck around. Our motto for the Iowa campaign for President Obama was respect, empower, include. And gosh, I think we could get back to that in politics. That is exactly what I want to do on Press Advance. And I'd love to have the audience involved. So if you're listening to this, please find me on social media at Johanna Masca. Send me what you think and let me know if I should read it on the podcast. Please follow us, rate and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.